what entrepreneurship really is about, and Schumbader actually makes a point about this, is that, you know, entrepreneurs actually help consumers to discover their wants and preferences for things that they didn't even know that they wanted. By coming up with these new combinations of things and informing people and, and trying to market their products that, that, you know, people will be like, wow, I didn't know I needed that, but now I can't live without it, right? Hi, and welcome to another episode of Essential Scholars. I'm Rosemary Fike, and in today's podcast, we're going to talk about the ideas of economist Joseph Schumpeter. I'm joined today by Russell Sobel, one of the co-authors of the Essential Joseph Schumpeter book. And Russ is a professor of economics and entrepreneurship in the Baker School of Business at the Citadel. He's also the author or co-author of over 250 academic journal articles and books. His current research focuses on the intersection of entrepreneurship and economic policy. Uh, Russ, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for having me. So your work on Joseph Schumpeter and the Essential Schumpeter book um, starts off kind of talking about who Schumpeter was as a person and his background. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, who he was, what his place within the economics profession was like? Sure, because I think it's kind of important to start there because I think that his own personal experiences largely shaped a lot of his viewpoints, particularly on the role of government uh, in the economy. Um, so uh, he, he was born uh, in Austria in parts of it that were now, I think, part of the Czech Republic in, in, 1850, in 1883. Um, but his father died when he was fairly young, and he ended up, uh, his mom remarried, uh, and his new stepfather was a, a former uh, military retired general who had uh, quite a lot of status and, and prestige in the, uh, in the government and in, in the uh, society there, and was fairly wealthy. And so he benefited greatly from that by being able to go to the best schools and get the best education possible. Uh, ended up going to the University of Vienna, uh, where he studied under uh, some very famous economists from the Austrian School of Economics. Um, but he actually didn't consider himself an Austrian, and we can get to the, those things uh, more a little bit later. But he very much liked math and science and was very much into the science and mathematics of economics. Um, ended up getting a teaching position um, right after his graduate uh, studies. Uh, but then he ended up moving into the private sector where he... Uh, um, actually ran a bank for a while, and uh, he worked as Minister of Finance for Austria uh, before going on to his real academic career that he's known for, where he was a professor at Harvard University and and uh, put out a lot of students and a lot of very uh, famous publications. In, in fact, kind of notably, he was uh, Paul Samuelson's uh, mentor, uh, and that, so Paul Samuelson was probably his most famous student. Uh, but and uh, and then probably one of his most notable accomplishments uh, is he was the first foreign born president of the American Economic Association. Oh, I had no idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you brought up that Schumpeter is often kind of classified as an Austrian economist. I didn't know he didn't consider himself to be part of the, the Austrian school, but he was educated by some of the more influential uh, scholars in the Austrian school. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how those influences show up in the way, you know, Schumpeter describes the market process and, and entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think that, you know, Austrians, much more than neoclassical economics, stress a couple of very specific things, one of which is the market is a process rather than studying the mathematical outcomes. You know, a, a traditional trained a PhD economist would be very uh, fluent in math and economic models, and almost all of those result in mathematical equations that you solve and have answers. And in economics, we call that like equilibrium theory, like there's an answer and the answer is 10 and everything's stationary at 10. And, uh, you know, the Austrians really view the economy as not something you can model that way, much more as a process. And perhaps more when we talk about his ideas, I really think that that his largely his writings are about how capitalism is a process and about how that process works. And I think some of the insights from approaching it that way are completely different than you get from, from looking at the economy as something that at each point in time has to satisfy some ideal conditions uh, for something. Um, 
So I, I think that, you know, the stresses on the market system as a process and also on entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, the standard principles of economics textbook really doesn't have much on entrepreneurship. In fact, if anything, there's usually a little paragraph in there that says the left out variable, the entrepreneur, because <laughs> most of principles economics is, you know, mathematical models of the firm and of consumer behavior. And, you know, obviously Schumpeter contributed largely to our understanding about entrepreneurship as well. So I, I think that is, is Austrian influence influence has really uh, shaped the, the topics that he thought about in the way he viewed uh, economic development and entrepreneurship in the economy. Yeah, entrepreneurship, it's one of those tricky ideas that is difficult to model. It's so unpredictable, the direction of entrepreneurship, what's going to be successful, what's not. Um, so let's turn to yeah. on the topic of entrepreneurship, because that's one of the topics that to me, that's really synonymous with, with Schumpeter's work. Um, how does, it, when we use the word entrepreneurship in kind of colloquial conversation, people often mean, you know, business owner. What is Schumpeter talking about when he's talking about entrepreneurship? Because it seems different than that. Yeah, that's a ideal question. You know, I, I teach both economics and entrepreneurship classes in my very first uh, day of class in my entrepreneurship classes, I walk in and I, I tell my students, I'm like, every one of you coming in this room, I bet thinks you know what an entrepreneur is. And my job by the end of the first day here is to convince you that you don't know. Uh, and they all leave like by the end of the first day going, you're right, I have no idea what an entrepreneur is. It turns out there's a lot of different ways you can define what it means to be an entrepreneur. So a, a very good example before we even get into Schumpeter, um, just for the average person is to ask yourself, you know, we all would agree that Elon Elon Musk, is, somebody like him, is an entrepreneur. He, he revolutionizes the world, private space flight, electric cars, you know, all this crazy new ideas that are just really new, unique. Somebody like Henry Ford, you know, is an entrepreneur. But what about somebody who owns a Subway restaurant and maybe they own it from afar? Uh, you know, you could be somebody who lives in Atlanta, has a lot of money, and you own a Subway restaurant in Baltimore that you never even visit and there's a manager of. Does that make you an entrepreneur, just being a business owner? And, and does it depend on how active you are in the business? And it's interesting because that this is just the beginning of the iceberg. And already, by the time I just ask, is a subway owner an entrepreneur? I've lost half the class thinking that's not an entrepreneur. The other half is. And they want to debate about whether a business owner is an entrepreneur or whether it requires that you do something new and unique. But then we get into this whole aspect about what about if you move outside of the for-profit sector. For example, the guy who invented baseball, Abner Doubleday, is he an entrepreneur? Or how about Blackbeard? As you know, we have some friends in our economics profession who have, have books on the economics of pirates. You know, interestingly enough, Blackbeard is a pirate, you know, had 300 men under his command. He had like three ships that he sailed. He went on on risky adventures. Some of them worked, some didn't. He had constitutional rules on board his ships. I mean, you know, he was operating for profit and for loss, but definitely not in the for-profit sector, right? You know, there's political entrepreneurs, legal entrepreneurs, military entrepreneurs. You know, somebody like George Washington was not only a military entrepreneur, but a political entrepreneur in America. Who do you count and who do you not count? And while we could do a whole podcast just on that, because I think it's an interesting uh, question, where I think we want to go for today's podcast is to say, what did Schumpeter think? Because he had a very specific definition that I think is worth entertaining. And for him, it was all about the fact that entrepreneurship was a specific process or phenomenon, which is when people experiment with new combinations of resources. So somebody says, you know what, I'm going to take this idea and put it with this idea and mix them together. And that's going to try this new product, this new idea, or even like a new location or something like that. That that to Schumpeter, the experimentation with new combinations of productive resources was what the hallmark of entrepreneurship was. And interestingly enough, he actually writes that the minute an entrepreneur starts their business and just ends up being the manager and owner of the business, they're no longer an entrepreneur. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this this focus on this idea of experimenting with combination of resources is very unique to Joseph Schumpeter. And I think in and of itself leads us to a lot of insights we wouldn't normally arrive at when we think about the way the economy works. And if you don't mind, uh, indulge me for a minute to give you an yeah. example. Please. 
You know, in the in the in the book, I, I I talk about a very fun example. You know, there's a lot of these pizza places you walk into. We have one here called Mod Pizza, where you walk in and they have all these toppings you can pick from, and you just go down the line and you say, "Do you want this? Do you want that?" And you know, anybody who's taken a business stats or a, a mathematical stats class knows there's these formulas for figuring out the number of ways you can pick three from whatever. Well, just if you said. Hey, there's 20 ingredients. You can only pick three. How many three topping pizzas can you make from 20 ingredients? The answer is almost 1,200. I mean, it's unbelievable how quickly those numbers multiply, right? Mm -hmm. And so what really, if you think about what Joseph Schumpeter is thinking, is he's thinking the world is full of all these resources, millions of resources, and there's almost an infinite number of new ways you can combine them. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different resources and combine them in different ways. You know, for a while they were selling shoes that when you walked, they lit up. They had lights in the shoes for kids. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody put lights with shoes. You know, that's a new combination of resources. And, and what entrepreneurship really is about is about the process by which we roll the dice on these new combinations of resources and experiment and maybe come up with something new that everybody loves. Like, you know, the Hawaiian pizza is a very particular combination of ingredients that was actually invented in the 1960s in Canada, um, you know, using pineapples and ham and and cheese. Uh, so, you know, some people stumble on these new combinations of resources. And, and that to, to is really what Schumpeter envisioned as what truly entrepreneurship was about. And it seems like, you know, I love that you brought up the Hawaiian pizza because that's a that's a very controversial topic. And for pizza lovers, there's a lot, it's very divisive. Um, so it seems like for some, any kind of entrepreneurial endeavor, it seems like there's a, a bit of risk. As you said, you roll the dice on this new combination and there's no guarantee that people are going to find it to be a winning combination. So what's guiding the entrepreneur through this process? Yeah, that's that's probably the, the, the next important step in Schumpeter's logic, right, is that there's almost an unlimited number of things that we could try and a bunch of them are going to not be very good. But it's hard to know in advance what things are going to be good or not good. You know, it's 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 funny because you know, one of the other segments I do in my class is we, we cover the introduction of the iPhone and Apple and how it, you know, overtook Microsoft. And there's this really funny video that you could find online of Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer uh, was was asked on TV what he thought about the new iPhone that was just unveiled. And he laughs at it, saying there's no way anybody's ever going to pay that much for a phone and nobody's ever going to want to use it because it doesn't have a keyboard. So it's going to be inefficient for email. Well, he's wrong, right? You know, the problem is it's hard to know in advance what things work and what things don't. You know, Apple stumbled on with the iPhone, a combination that a lot of people thought wasn't going to work that worked very well. And so it's hard to know in advance. And, and that's why you can't centrally plan the economy because no central planner could ever look at all these business plans and say, oh, this is a good one and this is a bad one, right? So we've constantly got entrepreneurs rolling the dice, trying these experiments. And the process under capitalism that helps us sort out the good ones from the bad ones is called the profit and loss system. So whenever you, you know, throw out a combination of resources that people like, it's going to sell and you're going to earn revenue that covers your cost and it's going to be profitable. And it's those profits that, that encourage people to experiment with all these combinations of resources and identify which ones are good. And it's the losses that identify which ones are bad so that those businesses go out of business and free up the resources for other people to experiment. And so it's this, this profit and loss system that, that is helping us sort through these vast number of new combinations of resources. So what does profit kind of kind of measure? Like, what is it a proxy for? I can look and see whether my business is earning a profit or a loss. But if I'm earning a profit, what is it telling me? Yeah, it's telling you basically that you've taken some resources and bid them away from other uses and you've turned it into something that consumers value even more than those alternative uses. I mean, it's both your revenue side and your cost side. And that's why the the combinations of resources matters. Just, I don't know if it would be a, an example that many people be familiar with, but these escape room games where you go in and you play the escape rooms. I love those. Yeah, a lot of people love those. In in my town, we've got a couple of firms that opened up trying to experiment you know, with, with providing those. One opened up right in the downtown of our historic district on the highest rent strip 
of road in our entire town, Market Street in downtown Charleston. There are so many businesses that will want to be on that street because you can sell so much just from all the foot traffic. So one opened there and then another one opened out in one of our suburbs that you, you know, that's got plenty of parking out in the middle of nowhere. Well, even though they, they have the same gains, their cost of production is so different. One of them's got rent that's like 10 times more per month than the other place does, right? But, but which combination of resources is better? Is it better to locate out and have people drive? Is it better? To, and that's what the profit and loss system helps us sort out, right? It's hard to know in advance, is it worthwhile to use up a space in the middle of one of the best commercial districts for that? Or is it better to use a place in the suburb? And, and so what profit indicates is that you've picked correctly, that you've picked a combination of resources that really works, that justifies the cost of production. You've increased the value of resources under your control. And then a loss then would say just the opposite. We're, we're destroying things. Yeah, yeah, that you've basically taken something that other people wanted to use for other things and you've used it for something that doesn't generate nearly as much revenue. So if you open up the escape room on that, that busy street and not many customers come in, you've taken up a storefront that could have been a restaurant, that could have been a convenience store, that could have been a thousand other things that people might have liked better. And so it's really about you know, figuring out what the consumer wants and what the consumer is going to be happy with. Right. And it's hard to know that in advance. I mean, I've even run business plan competitions in my career for students, and it's just so hard in advance. You look at an idea, you think this, I don't know, is it good? Is it bad? It's just hard to know till something's actually in the market, in the competitive marketplace, as to whether it's going to be something that appeals to people. And, 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 and that's what the profit and loss system does for us. Yeah, I love bringing up these kind of examples in class. I often talk to my students about Snuggies. Do you remember those Snuggies? Yeah. It's uh, basically somebody had the idea, I'm going to take a bathrobe and turn it around and call it a blanket with sleeves. And that person, I never would have bet on that idea, but that person made millions of dollars. Yeah. So it's just, it's amazing what entrepreneurs are able to figure out. Yeah. Um, so... Another, just switching gears slightly, um, you mention business failure in this chapter. You talk about business failure, and that's not normally something that people think about from a positive light, but you emphasize that there is a positive side to businesses failing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, the, 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 for the economy as a whole, the big positive of business failure is that it weeds people out who are, who are using up some of our scarce resources to produce things that people don't want anymore. I mean, just as, and, and we'll, we'll probably get to the creative destruction aspect in a minute, because that's where this, this natural leads. So I don't want to jump ahead of myself. But, you know, when we think about things that don't exist anymore, you know, blockbuster video or video rental stores. We don't want those things still around, right? Nobody's doing that anymore, right? We don't want hula hoop makers or, you know, all these things, horse and buggy makers. We don't need those guys anymore. We have cars, right? And, and it's this loss process that basically frees up those resources, closes down those businesses, frees up the labor, frees up the capital, frees up the natural resources for other entrepreneurs to experiment doing things with. So, you know, it's it's that that cycling of 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 freeing up resources that other people can use. And, you know, in most towns, I know that there's some towns that are struggling and going by the wayside. But in most towns, whenever there's a uh, some sort of a strip mall and, and one place closes down, somebody else opens up in that place to experiment with that. And we've got a wonderful example here in, in my part of town. We had this this place that it, like in the 60s was an old gas station. It turned into an auto repair place. And then that place went out of business and tried to open up being a window tinning place, some small entrepreneur. They went out of business. The building remained boarded up for a while. And then somebody decided to open up a barbecue restaurant in there. And that place has a line out the door every day. It's so successful. He's opened up two more restaurants in different parts of town. So, you know, had that place not gone out of business and this guy see it and, and saw, wow, here's a place for me to try you know, my new barbecue idea, we wouldn't have this wonderful, successful barbecue chain in Charleston, you know, had those resources not been freed up from other alternative uses. So that's something we don't normally think much about, right? The things that we enjoy and take for granted today are things that might not have been possible um, had those resources not been freed up through past business failures. So, um, 
that is a very silver lining to something that is genuine, generally seen as, as a pretty negative aspect of the market. Yeah, and it's important for people. That's why, I, again, you know, teaching the entrepreneurship classes, I'm always like, you guys are looking for ideas for starting new businesses. You know, there's always this entire area of how do I redeploy things that are unemployed that is this wonderful avenue of entrepreneurship. I think in most towns across America and other countries, these old shopping malls are sitting there empty, right? You know, somebody's got to find new uses for those things. And people are, you know, Amazon's buying them and putting in distribution warehouses. Here in my town, we got a hospital that bought one of our old shopping malls and is using that as, as, a, as a doctor's office area. Um, the HBO actually purchased one of our uh, parts of our old mall and is filming two of the current HBO series uh, inside of what used to be an old Sears department store. Um, you know, so, you know, it's it's this recycling process that creates constantly creates new entrepreneurial opportunities and just recycling, reshuffling resources to ever, you know, newer and newer ideas. That's amazing. Um, so I do want to point out, kind of transition a little bit to this idea of creative destruction. Um you mentioned that Schumpeter entrepreneur, Schumpeterian entrepreneurship is disruptive. It's ultimately a disruptive force. Um, so can you explain what, what that means and how it kind of relates to the creative destruction, which is if there's one idea that people who are familiar with Schumpeter kind of associate him with, it's this creative destruction. So, so what is disruptive entrepreneurship and how does, how does that relate to creative destruction? Yeah. And let's give Schumpeter his due. I think there's probably no term other than Adam Smith's invisible hand that the average person would have run into more in just popular media blogs, you know, anything just in their daily life than, than, than creative destruction. It has to be number two to the invisible hand principle, which is a fairly big accomplishment if you think of it. I mean, you know, the term is something that is used just in all the time. And, you know, Joseph Schumpeter popularized it. Uh, it's interesting, there's a little footnote in the essential uh, Joseph Schumpeter book for people interested in following up on the history of that term. It was actually used by a uh, German economist earlier uh, in, in a book. Uh, so Schumpeter isn't the actual originator of the term, but he's certainly the person who popularized it and, and wrote about it and made it famous. And, you know, what I think is so interesting about his view on this is that most people just think about entrepreneurship in terms of its creative side. What's new, right? The new things that entrepreneurship creates. Where Joseph Schumpeter's whole argument was that it's not just that. There's this whole other side that's destructive. That is the automobile is this wonderful new invention that then displaces and destroys the entire horse and buggy industry, causing tens of thousands of people to, to become unemployed and go out of business, right? Businesses to go out of business. You know, we have wonderful that Amazon is causing all these failures to happen of all the traditional shopping malls, and, you know, and Netflix is what drove out Blockbuster. It's this constant, not only creation, but destruction. And it's that process that Joseph Schumpeter claims is responsible for, like all of our progress through time, is this ongoing process by which new goods and services replace and displace the old way of doing things. You know, in, in just in the last decade or so, we've seen Uber basically replace the standard yellow taxi industry that we thought would never be replaced because it had this monopoly, you know, across the world in all these cities, right? So there's this constant replacement process that's going on that is the true source of progress and prosperity. Yeah, I love thinking about examples of creative destruction. You know, one of my favorites is to talk about how the means by which we listen to music have changed so dramatically over time. I used to think about my iPod as this life-changing device that really improved, you know, the cleanliness of my car because I didn't have CDs strewn about my car anymore because I had everything on this iPod and it broke a couple years ago and I never bothered to replace it because there's always something better. I don't need that anymore. I can just do everything with my phone. Um, so for examples like the horse and buggy, it's pretty easy for us to look back and say, yeah, 
you know, I'm not too sad about the horse and buggy industry going under. I'm a little far removed from that horse and buggy industry, even though it was, you know, tens of thousands of people who lost their livelihood. Um, but it's a little bit harder for people to kind of separate the destruction from the benefits in that moment, right? So that example you brought up about Uber and Lyft, right? There are some places that have, you know, rules in place that have kind of blocked that innovative process. Uh, there are definitely some cities that I've been to. Last time I was in Vancouver, it was the case that I couldn't get an Uber or Lyft. I had to get a cab. So there are definitely cities who have had rules um, in place to kind of preserve. Why Why do you think that that happens? Well, I, I don't think it's just a, a mystery that happens. People, when they're losing their jobs, don't like that. And, and they try to get the government to help protect their jobs, to keep their jobs from disappearing, right? But I, this is, I think, the interesting, um, I don't know what you call, follow-up to the idea of creative destruction is this idea that it's constantly creating enemies of the, the very own process itself, right? It's constantly creating a situation where people are losing their jobs, losing their businesses, you know, and, and those people try to get government to pass laws and restrictions to block whatever's causing it. You know, there have been violent protests about Uber around the world. You know, cities have banned them. And it's not just that. If you go back, you know, the Horse and Buggy Industry Association of America was trying to, to, to block the automobile coming in place. We've got, you know, uh, bus drivers striking about driverless buses being introduced in cities. You know, you, you've got this constant churning where people are trying to defend their current lifestyle and way of doing things. And, and you know, to the extent that, that politicians listen and pass laws that limit the creative destruction that's going on to try to protect these failing industries, subsidize them. You know, they interfere with the profit and loss system that we were just talking about that's so critical. The government will step in, interfere with that, and block the entry of all these new innovations. And, and that's really, I think, the biggest lesson from Schumpeter about economic development is if you want to be a rich society, a prosperous society in the long run, the single most important thing is leaving your markets open to this process of creative destruction. That the minute you get in the business of blocking this process is when you end up destroying your, your economy and, and creating stagnation. And that putting up with that process is the key part of, of, of making sure you have an economy that, that through time progresses. And it's a shame it's so tempting for politicians to give in to that. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, I hope we can talk about why that is just a little bit later. Um, one more question I had about uh, creative destruction is, you know, who's driving that process, right? There's winners and losers in the creative destruction process, but like ultimately who's determining what wins the day and what gets destroyed? Yeah, well, again, it's it's back to this profit and loss system, but let's delve into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, fans of of the cartoon TV show South Park may remember an episode where they're they're destined to find out who is running Walmart, right? And and so the whole episode is about them trying to figure out who's running Walmart, this giant, and they make it in at the very end of the episode into the like the the head office, and you know what's there? A mirror. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's like it's, you know, consumer preferences, our demand for goods and services, our willingness to pay for goods and services. You know, that's the primary determinant of what creates profits and losses for business. Right. You know, restaurants that open up that please people that people like to eat at are profitable. It's the restaurants that burn food, have horrible service, get bad reviews that people quit going to and go out of business. And so it's that aspect of, of pleasing customers and really consumer demands that are causing these, these changes in profits and losses. And it's important to note that those aren't static through time. That is, our preferences change over time. So what things are profitable today may not be the same things that are profitable 10 years from now. And, and so it's important that this profit and loss system is an ongoing process that helps us, you know, move with, with our preferences and our changes in, in, in society. So can, Consumers are kind of the biggest group in any market, 
right? And if they're voting with their dollars and kind of driving this creative destruction process, seems like consumers might be who's harmed when we stand in the way of that creative destruction process. Yep. But as Schumpeter says, you know, it, it's kind of hard, though, because, you know, what entrepreneurship is about is about creating a new combination of resources that doesn't exist. So it's not like you can go ask consumers, what is it that you want that you don't currently have that hasn't been invented yet? <laughs> it's not like in the 70s, somebody was said, I know you should invent the Internet. Like nobody would have thought about the Internet, right? Or cell phone, you know, and so what entrepreneurship really is about, and Schumpeter actually makes a point about this, is that, you know, Entrepreneurs actually help consumers to discover their wants and preferences for things that they didn't even know that they wanted, you know, by by coming up with these new combinations of things and informing people and and trying to market their products that that, you know, people will be like, wow, I didn't know I needed that. But now I can't live without it. Right. And, and I say that all the time from the ads on my Instagram account. I get all these ads. Oh, I didn't even know I needed that or wanted that in my life. Thank you, entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, so does creative destruction, I lied when I said that was my last question about creative destruction. Does it just apply to the invention of new products or can we think about um, creative destruction more broadly in terms of altering production methods or altering? Okay. Very good question. And I think we actually ought to back up and be a little more precise on wording for people sure. uh, because I, I was in the book and Schumpeter certainly is. So he, he likes to differentiate between two terms, invention and innovation. Invention, what we normally think of as invention is something that could happen in a scientific laboratory. You know, we, we invent something new. But not all inventions are commercially viable ideas, right? You can invent something, for example, <clears throat> that was a way to make gasoline out of chicken poop. But if the cost of doing it was $500 a gallon, you're not gonna be able to market that. Nobody's gonna pay $500 a gallon for this gasoline when the gasoline next door is $4 a gallon or whatever it is, even though that's expensive, it's not $500, right? So there's a lot of inventions all the time that aren't really good commercially viable products. And, and in contrast, innovation, which is the commercial application of something, you know, the commercial viability doesn't have to be a new invention. You know, like you're saying, we all you know, the pet rock from the 80s or something, or, or even Henry Ford. Henry Ford is such a good example. This Henry Ford didn't invent the car and he didn't invent the assembly line. What he did is Joseph Schumpeter's thing of combining the assembly line with the automobile, combining these two things that nobody else had combined before. And in doing so, he innovated. So he was an innovator. And that's what really entrepreneurship is about, is about commercial viability and innovation. And um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I think that, that that's the most important thing is, is this aspect of innovation. And that innovation can either be new goods and services or new means and methods of production. And that's exactly what Henry Ford did. What, you know, was a new means of production. Another entrepreneur who's very famous in that same regard is Ray Kroc, who a lot of people associate with McDonald's, but he didn't invent McDonald's. He went into Maurice and, and his brother, I can't remember the other brother's name, McDonald Brothers owned a restaurant. He was a milkshake mixture salesman and says, man, you guys ought to take this idea nationwide. And what Ray Kroc invented was the business model of franchising. Prior to Ray Kroc, there was no franchising business model used. Um, and so this idea that there can be this, this, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you can pay to own a single location of a Subway restaurant, for example, or a McDonald's. But each one is independently owned and operated, but they're under this franchising umbrella. So this business model is something that, that Ray Kroc invented, and that's innovation and entrepreneurship uh, in Joseph Schumpeter's world, too. So it's a very broad concept, not just about products, not just about production methods, but even new ways of contracting with each other. That's, that's correct. Yeah, that's a great way to, to think about it. Um, so I want to switch gears again uh, to talk a little bit about something we've alluded to, uh, which is dynamic competition, competition over time, um, and how you know, sometimes markets that seem like they're not very competitive might actually be quite competitive. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, you know, this idea of con contestable markets and the nature of, of competition over time? Sure. I, I think that's one of the areas where Schumpeter, I think, um, 
is probably least understood. And unfortunately, it's one of the areas where I think he's probably got some of the most controversial and interesting ideas relative to the rest of the economics profession. So the things that we've talked about already, I think the vast majority of economists say, yeah, now that, now that we know those things, we all agree with them. This aspect of Schumpeter's theory, I think most people don't know about and may not all agree with. And that's what I think is, is the most interesting thing, even though I, I think he's 100% right. So, you know, traditionally in economics, when we think about how do we measure competition, how do you know if industry A is more or less competitive than industry B? The traditional way of doing that is by saying, hey, how many firms are in the industry? If it's an industry where there's like hundreds of firms all competing very heavily against each other, well, that's competition. But if you've got a market like cell phones where the iPhone is dominating that industry and there maybe is only two or three big competitors, oh, that can't be competitive. That's the traditional way economics approaches that. Joseph Schumpeter says that's completely wrong. He said what matters is not the number of firms in the industry, but whether it's contestable. And that's a more of a modern term. But the right way of thinking of it is, is it open for new people to enter and displace the existing firms? So some industries might be very competitive, but there's restricted entry. So, you know, the government often has licensing, for example, that restricts the number of uh, bars in a particular town or liquor licenses. Well, that means you've got an industry where there's some sort of barrier to entry. And whenever there's these barriers to entry to Joseph Schumpeter, that's what made an industry uncompetitive. What was really important for an industry to be competitive was not how many firms there were, but that the fact that people could easily enter and start competing with those firms uh, because the market is open, has low barriers to entry is another name for it, or in the fancier term is contestable. And it's that contestability that really matters. And uh, so, I, so if I it may indulge me with, with a quote, I would love to read a quote from Joseph Schumpeter, oh, really? if that's okay here uh, for you. So he says, you know, from, from the Joseph Schumpeter, essential Joseph Schumpeter book here. See if I can read this quote for you here. He says, a system, any system, economic or other, that at every given point of time fully utilizes its possibilities to the best advantage may yet in the long run be inferior to a system that does so at no given point of time. He says, as soon as we go into de details and inquire into the individual items in which progress was most conspicuous, the trail leads not to the doors of those firms that work under conditions of comparatively free competition, but precisely to the doors of the large concerns. And a shocking suspicion draws upon us that big business may have more to do with creating that standard of life than with keeping it down. So let's kind of interpret that for a minute. Really what Schumpeter views is progress in the world is is, is Facebook replacing MySpace, where now Facebook's getting replaced by you know, TikTok, Twitter, you, whatever. And, and you know, it's like Microsoft was the dominant monopoly, now replaced by Apple. And 20 years from now, somebody else is going to replace them. You know, at any point in time, we tend to think, oh, that Apple's a monopoly or you know, Amazon's a monopoly. And, and what Schumpeter's point is, is no, no, no. More progress is made through this process where you end up with innovators who are so good that they generate an innovation that earns them temporary monopoly power and monopoly profits. And what the real world is, is a process where they're continuously replacing those with a new one. So, you know, there'll be somebody who's hugely profitable at some point in time, like right now it's Amazon or, or Apple. And in 20 years, it's going to be somebody completely new. And it's always so hard for, especially young students, to say, "Oh, th there'll never be a day where Amazon or, or, or you know, Apple isn't that." But all you got to do is give them some historical examples. I'll guarantee you, most people watching this podcast don't know who Montgomery Ward was. Montgomery Ward was the Amazon of the 1950s and 60s. They were the single largest retailer in the world, top of the Fortune 500, right in every city in America, and people don't even know their name anymore. You know, Sears, Kmart, how about Kmart was, everybody thought Kmart was this giant monopoly, right? There's been these monopolies our government has even gone after, like the great supermarket monopoly, Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company that nobody's heard of today, right? These things continuously are getting replaced through time. There's no more Kmart. There's no more Blockbuster. There's no more Montgomery Wards. And in 20 or 30 years, there's going to be no more Amazon, no more Apple, and they're going to be replaced by something else. And it's this, this churning process of monopolies replacing monopolies and temporary monopolies So that, that Schumpeter says, you can end up with more progress through time 
by a system where you've got monopolies replacing monopolies, and at no point in time do you have a competitive market that you would view as efficient, then you can with having an efficient market that at every point in time is efficient, like, I don't know, economists point to like agriculture as an example of pure competition, you know, producing number two yellow corn. There's millions of people who do that everywhere, you know, that you end up with no progress in the corn industry and tremendous progress in computers, even though it's computers that are monopoly after monopoly and corn is millions of competitors. And I think that is a controversial idea. I think most economists could sit and have a big debate and discussion on whether they agree with the idea that a, a, a bunch of inefficient markets through time adds up to something better in the long run than a bunch of efficient markets uh, you know, at every point in time. Yeah, I do think that that's something that's difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. I know when I talk about this with my students, you know, I ask them, how many of you think Facebook is a monopoly? And they're all, oh, yes, Facebook's absolutely a monopoly. And then I ask them how many of them have had a MySpace page in their lifetime, and, and none of them have had one. I ask them, you know, how many of you used AOL Instant Messenger, right? So a lot of your examples in the book, uh, those those were ones that were mentioned. They yeah. may feel a little bit old because I do have some firsthand experience with these uh, products that were monopolies at one point in time, but have become replaced by uh, other products that consumers like better. Yeah. Um, so it's always a little refreshing. Just one other quick thing, if I may tease out on that real quick, that ties back to what we were talking about earlier, is that for Joseph Schumpeter, he didn't, you know, we tend to think a competition is like in the old days when there was Blockbuster Video. I actually worked for uh, the main competitor to Blockbuster Video. It was called Pick a Flick Video. It was the second biggest video rental store chain. And, you know, we always viewed them as our competitor. They viewed us as our competitor. And we were always worried they would run us out of business. They were always worried we'd run them out of business. And, of course, none of that happened. What happened is Netflix ran us both out of business. And, and that's what Joseph Schumpeter says. The true nature of competition isn't firm A competing against firm, isn't Chevy versus Ford. It's it's somebody like Elon Musk coming in with electric cars. You know, it, it's, it's this new product completely displacing the old way of doing things that is real competition. And it's this process of disruptive innovations in replacement that matters much more as a measure of competition than how many firms are currently producing that one product competing with each other. So it seems like that process of creative destruction leads to very clear benefits over the long run, you know, source of economic growth. But what about the short run, right? How does this innovative process affect what we might think about as business cycles, recessions, uh, expansions? Um, can you can you connect this innovation? to uh, Schumpeter's view of business cycle theory. Yeah, you know, Joseph Schumpeter actually wrote quite a bit on business cycle theory, and I don't think it, a lot of his work on that is caught on very much. And, uh, you know, he, um, I think he's, he's much more famous for his contributions about entrepreneurship than business cycle theory, but he did indeed write a lot about it, and he had some very specific views that I don't think are very, you know, accepted as mainstream. He, uh, at the time, a lot of people were working on this wave theory, and the idea is you get long-term waves and, you know, short-term waves, and, and they would almost model them very mathematically, like every 10 years we have a recession kind of model, you know? Um, and he really tried to tie that to the idea that these new innovations that we were talking about are what create the booms. And that by sucking resources and profits in, that it drives up resource prices elsewhere, causes other things to go out of business and people overshoot, and then you kind of have a crash. And so he tries to tie those ideas together. Although, um, you know, we have a chapter in the book on it, although I, I think that that's probably not the most important parts of his contribution, but he really did believe that there was some link between the business cycle um, and these, this innovation process. Yeah, I, I am one of the people who wasn't entirely aware that Schumpeter did so much work on business cycle theory. Um, so before we end today, I wanted to bring up um, Schumpeter's view of democracy and public policy. Um, and it seems like he, he might have been a major influence in the school of public choice, which I, I wasn't 
entirely aware of either. This is something new that I've learned in reading your book. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about that? Sure. You know, and and uh, back to the very beginning of our podcast, I said, you know, I think that his time working in government really gave him some insights that other economists of his time uh, didn't have, and maybe even modern modern economists who, who aren't as familiar with the way government really works. You know, James Buchanan, who won the the Nobel Prize for his contributions in economics to helping us understand the way government works and public choice theory, you know, is a big fan of saying, you know, just because somebody goes into the political process, whether they're a government employee or an elected representative, doesn't mean they fundamentally change and suddenly put on some new hat and become a different person. They're the same person looking out for their own interest and the things that they care about. And Joseph Schumpeter was very keenly aware of that, that basically people in the public sector were out for their own motives, their own interests. Um, they were striving to get votes, to get reelected and trying to please people and trying to please special interest groups and that these special interest groups got too much power in the political process particularly ones who were trying to block this creative destruction process. So he, Joseph Schumpeter shares a lot with, with uh, modern public choice theory in terms of being skeptical of government. Uh, it's, uh, it's catering to special interest groups, skeptical of the knowledge that, that voters may have about the political process and, and, and the upper hand that that gives special interest groups. Um, and so he indeed was, you know, I think he could sit in a room full of modern uh, public ecom and people and and be like, yeah, I said this you know a long time ago. That's a no brainer. It's what happened when I worked in government. Is that's the way things were? Yeah, Tulloch uh, came about his views on the political process through hands on experience and observation as well. Yeah. Um, and so did Bill Niskanen, the bureaucracy theory guy. So if you really look at the people who really have led our understanding that government doesn't work well, it's the people from government. It's, it's the people who've never been in government, who are the PhD economists, who've only been academic economists, who are the ones that think their mathematical models are exactly the way the political process works, which, you know, is just not a good view and accurate view of the way the way it really works. Well, I don't want us to end this conversation on a sad note, a downer note, um, but, uh, you know, what hope do you have in terms of, and one of the last things you talk about in the book is can capitalism sur survive, right? And so um, I don't want to end this conversation on a downer note, but the book kind of ends in a little bit of a, a, a downer prediction on the part of Schumpeter. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is, you know, in addition to his creative destruction, the other thing he's probably most famous for is his um, his conjecture that capitalism can't survive. Um, and it's, uh, you know, definitely the, uh, you know, for, for readers, his, his most familiar book is Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And he's got a very lengthy discussion in there on the end of capitalism and what causes it. And it's very interesting because he says, you know, I agree, he, he says, look, I agree with Karl Marx, capitalism's gonna end and it's gonna turn into socialism. He said, here's where I disagree with the guy on the desirability of it and the, the thing that's gonna cause it. So in Marx's world, the thing that causes the end of capitalism is that capitalism just doesn't deliver wealth for the workers. In Schumpeter's world, it's just the opposite. It's the fact that capitalism lifts so many people out of poverty and up into a place where we, in his view, become, you know, academics and scholars and thinkers and artists that we get so removed from the very process of entrepreneurship and property that we start fighting against the very things that got us the prosperity. So you end up with, with intellectual, the intellectual class in Schumpeter's world that fights against capitalism. And a lot of people would say that's exactly what's going on in our modern universities is you've got this large intellectual class who the only reason they exist is because capitalism has delivered so much wealth that those people don't have to farm to eat every night, right? That they can be just sitting around reading Aristotle and Plato all day and still survive in the world because we've got so much productivity that, that the economy can support this huge intellectual class. That it's ironic that that those are the very people who then turn against the ideas of property, turn against the ideas of capitalism. And so in Schumpeter's world, it's the very abundance produced by capitalism that leads to a social class of people who no longer defend it. In fact, not only do they no longer defend it, they actively fight to bring down the system that generated that wealth. 
And then secondly, he says, I differ from Marx in that Marx thinks it's going to be a good thing when that happens. He said, it's not. It's going to be the end of creative destruction, the end of innovation and a stagnation of the world. And, you know, I think Joseph Schumpeter, it's interesting reading his work from the 30s and 40s because he viewed this process as already going on in a big way then. I mean, obviously, people familiar with a little bit of history know the New Deal and the things going on during World War II. But he was he was very convinced that government had grown too much, was way overstepping its bounds, that there were already these, these, these classes of people who were very anti-capitalism. And I think it's hard not as a, as a modern, you know, free market oriented economist to look at the world today and say that march has just continued. You know, we have, you know, students in our classrooms who think Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism is the best thing since sliced bread. And, and, you know, you, you kind of wonder because, you know, when we were growing up or when I was growing up, I'm a little bit older than you, I'm sure. You know, we have the evil empire. Like in school, everybody hated socialism because that was the evil empire. Right. And now you've got students who grew up this. And so I think if anything, the march has continued on to where a larger and larger percentage of just the average population, particularly among young people, is much more favorable towards socialism or a better way of saying it is anti-capitalism and and anti-business and anti-property rights. And, and uh, you know, I I think, unfortunately, Schumpeter thought that that that's going to lead to the downfall of capitalism. I will say, however, though, that there are some people who think that Schumpeter was pulling our leg. In fact, in in his his biography of Schumpeter, uh, Thomas McCraw um, has this really nice biography called The Prophet of Innovation, a a biography of Schumpeter. And in there, he he claims that Schumpeter really meant that kind of tongue tongue in cheek. But um, I think most people that I've run into and had a discussion with thinks that Schumpeter meant what he said and that he really thought it was going to end because he spent so much time of his work downing on socialism and how capitalism is so much better. I think it's hard for some some people to read him and go, how could he possibly think that in the long run socialism would win? Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. He he didn't have a very good outlook for for the future of, of, of capitalism because there just wasn't enough people who defended it. And I think another aspect of that is that he thought that you know, that the entrepreneur had been removed from the pedestal of society, that in the old days, you know, being a businessman was a pinnacle of life. It was something to be admired. It was something to be celebrated, something that young people should should say, I dream to grow up to be an innovator, to be a businessman, to be an entrepreneur. And that should be as celebrated as being a doctor, a lawyer or a politician instead of being vilified, you know, and today we vilify people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and these wealthy, successful businessmen. And and I, I think that's a whole nother aspect of this that Joseph Schumpeter was worried about is, is how those people are vilified instead of celebrated. Well, I really hope that we can continue talking about this and more and of of Schumpeter's ideas and how they apply to our our modern world, Um, because I think there's a lot more to explore, especially with, um, you know, the influence of the uh, business sector on our public policy decisions and how that might even be, you know, sowing some of the seeds of of doubt that people have for capitalism. Um, So I hope we can get into some of those ideas and more in our next episode. But thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and thanks for having me. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time. Thank you.